few years ago, as I recall the story, a man stopped by a flea market near Philadelphia. I don't know if we're very familiar with flea markets around here. might have something to do with the weather coming about uh, October through March or April, something like that. But on the East Coast, they're very popular things, and they're kind of just a glorified garage sale. Someone sets up a whole bunch of tables, maybe in a parking lot or in a field, and you purchase a table or rent a table for the day, and they throw out whatever wares are there. Sometimes they're garage sale-oriented. Many times they're a good place to find antiques. And there was a man a few years ago at a flea market near Philadelphia who found a picture in an antique frame. I think it's been made uh, even recently. I, I am a fairly, very rare watcher of television, but uh, once in a while I watch, and I think I've seen a commercial of this, actually. I don't know what it was or advertising. I, I have no idea, but uh, there was some commercial of this uh, event. And this man, if you saw that commercial, and there was, uh, the truth came out uh, much earlier than that in the newspapers, he saw this picture, this frame, and thought it's not very valuable. Didn't pay much for it, and he could not have cared less about the picture that was in it. His intention was the frame, and he hoped to restore what he understood to be an antique frame. To his great surprise, when he removed the picture from the frame, behind the picture was an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. It had the actual signatures of the Founding Fathers on it. His estimation of the worth of his purchase, as you can imagine, skyrocketed. And the story went around the country of this tremendous find. What seemed at first glance to be little more than a cheap old picture frame proved to be a treasure of inestimable value. Somewhere at a local store, shopping by phone or mail order or on the internet, you purchased a treasure of greater value than that man. Or perhaps this treasure was given to you as a Christmas or birthday gift or as an award. You may keep it on the floor under your bed or on a shelf. It may even be collecting dust right now as we speak. Whatever the case, it is every bit as valuable and infinitely more than the treasure discovered by that flea market shopper. And I speak, of course, of your Bible. Do we begin to recognize what a valuable treasure we hold in our hands when we pick up a Bible? Now, we could look at that question from a number of angles. First of all, from the sense of rarity of this possession. We lose sight of this in our contemporary world. But we need to look at this from, realistic, from a realistic standpoint. We also lose sight of it, I think, in light of America and its abundance, and its freedom. In past ages, there were generations of Christians who never saw a Bible, never put their eyes on one, had no access to one. Many of them would go to churches on the Lord's Day and would hear the Bible read. And this is un almost unimaginable to us, but the reading would be in a language that was not their own. They would hear a performance by a priest reading in Latin the Word of God. They never read it for themselves, never had a copy of the Word of God. Generation after generation after generation of believers. And how many of them were genuine believers, we have no idea, but they claim Christianity, never read the Word of God. 
then as some deigned to take on the project of putting the Bible in the language of the people, many of those individuals died for the cause. They gave their life. The resistance was so heavy not to put the Bible in the language of the people. We must consider that history when we pick up our Bibles. And even today, many Christians in other lands do not own a Bible of their own and have no ability to purchase one. They may be too expensive. They may not be offered at times the Bible. In places, the Bible is illegal. It is, has been said here recently that in the house churches in China, it is an act of love to pass Bibles around to each individual house church. When I say Bibles, I mean Bibles going one to each house church. And if you as a Christian own your own Bible, and this is true today in places in China, if you own your own Bible, you're selfish. Because you ought to pass that Bible on to a church that has no Bible. It is difficult for us to even imagine, begin to conceive this situation in other lands. When we hold in our Bibles, or in our hands, Bibles of all sizes, all colors. I mean, you can, you can look in these books and you can talk about what color the edges of the paper's going to be. And how big it's going to be and what kind of footnotes are in it and what kind of translation it is and the like. We have so many options. We can find Bibles everywhere. And we could talk about that for a long time. I think we need to develop a sense of appreciation along these lines, but I speak primarily this morning of a different kind of value. Not the value of merely possessing a volume of the Bible, but the inherent worth of the content of this volume. Do we as Bible-believing Christians even begin to perceive the inestimable value, the worth of this book that we call the Bible? One test might be the way in which you read the Bible this past week. Did you read it? Did you even pick it up at all to read it? And if you did, did you read with passion, with devotion, with enthusiasm? Did you read God's Word and devour what He was saying? Was your mind stimulated, your theology deepened, your passion for God inflamed with spiritual resolve? I don't know about you, well, I think I probably do know about you, but for me, those kinds of weeks are pretty rare. There is a discipline to reading God's Word, but that God would bring, is my prayer for you and for myself, desires for His Word, passions for His Word, a longing to consider it and know it and to read it. I know that I need to be reminded then of the value of this book. We will never treasure God's Word in our hearts until we appreciate its value to us. We will never read this book with honorable faithfulness until we realize its inherent worth. My purpose then is to remind you of what you already know, just an exhortation this morning, but to fan the fire of appreciation in your heart for this treasure that we call the Bible. And I'd like to look at that along three lines. First of all, we should value the Bible for its origin, where it came from. I think I said 2 Thessalonians, I meant 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2. According to Acts 17, Paul personally brought the gospel message to Thessalonica when he preached at the Jewish synagogue there on his second missionary journey. The tremendous response to his teaching led to the formation of a local church in Thessalonica. Throughout this letter written after persecution forced him to leave the city, Paul recalls the remarkable conversion of the Thessalonian believers. If you'll notice there in chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, chapter 2 and verse 4, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us, surely. You remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. And now in this epistle, overjoyed by a report from his envoy, Timothy, concerning the spiritual progress of the Thessalonians, Paul's joy bursts forth in thanksgiving to God. If we drop down there to verse 13, he says, And we also thank God, verse 13, We thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God. You received it as the Word of God. You notice the word there in verse 13 translated here, because You received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. That word because that starts that phrase is the Greek word which can be translated because or that. And uh, I think it might be even better translated that here. We also thank God continually that you received the word of God which you heard from us and accepted it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Not as the word of men. In this context, of course, there was no New Testament. Authority was vested in the Old Testament scriptures and in the apostolic preaching and witness to the death and resurrection of Christ. God's word has taken many forms over the centuries, but in our time, it is in a book. It's in a document or documents, but it's in a book. It's in written form. In 1545, with holy boldness, Roman Catholic priest Martin Luther asserted against the Roman church's claim to speak for God. He said this, Let the man who would hear God speak read the Holy Scriptures. And that's what we do. And that's what the privilege is ours, to hear the Word of God as we read the Scriptures. This book that we hold in our hands, this book that we read, is not the Word of men. Although men wrote it, It is, in the final analysis, the Word of God. He superintended the process so that they wrote what He wanted them to write. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand, writes Peter, that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
I do not apologize to say that belief in that verse of Scripture, those two verses, directs the course of my life. Everything that I believe, everything that I do, everything that I think is based on a belief in that claim of the Word of God. That it is not the Word of man. It is the Word of God. God doesn't change. God doesn't improve. God doesn't grow up. What he said, he said. It's his word. Now many take a different view of that verse and of other verses in Scripture like it. But if you hold that to be the case, that it is the word of God, that will direct the course of your life. All types of decisions, all types of issues of living will be settled at that point. That it is not the word of man. It is the word of God. And I'm excited to go to heaven. I tremble for people who will go to heaven and stand before God and have to apologize that they didn't take it as his word. I look forward to meeting him and saying, you said it was your word, and like a little child, I believed it. And I've tested it over and over again, and it has proven to be the Word of God. It is a step of faith, but it is not a step of irrationality, because God's Word and what it says proves over and over against man's wisdom to be the truth. It is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Greek word to breathe out. God has breathed out or expired his word through the work of human individuals, but in the end, orchestrating that what is been, has been written is in fact God-breathed. Now, just to tie back to our uh, previous or somehow present series of sermons, people who do not believe in the providence of God struggle tremendously with believing in the inspiration of the text of Scripture. Because the influence of God is not active in this world, in their mind. And therefore, the thought that God could use humans to write down His expired word is hard to imagine. And I think your view of providence then will very much affect your view of inspiration. But at any rate, God Himself is the source of the words found in this book. Now, I don't say that to you as a novel idea. Here's a tremendous new truth that's going to really help you out to put things together in your Christian life. It's just one of those values that we need to consider. This is God's truth, and I need to hear that from time to time. It is God's words, and to value it along that, those lines. If you love God, you will love His creation. You will see in the rocks and trees and the mountains and streams and the valleys and plains, in the sky and oceans and animals and birds and sea creatures, you will see the handiwork of a powerful and omnipotent God. You will value them as, the, as His work of art and you will worship God as you look at the creative order. But if you truly love God, you will find an even deeper source of worship in His words if you value God, what He says will be to you a profound treasure. I've illustrated this before, but I, it works for me. Uh, as I was dating my wife-to-be, a senior in college, I, we were um, separated for a summer. 
for three months as I traveled around the country speaking and uh, ministering in churches and as she was working here in the cities. And I'll never forget, I know I can see the place, I have no clue what the name of the town was of the state. We were through all kinds of places, but I'll never forget the very place where I opened a package from her in the van, and in that package was a dress shirt. It wasn't a dress shirt in the shiny packaging, it was a dress shirt she made. And I, I mean, I was blown away. What a, that's, a, that's incredible. How do you make a shirt? I had trouble washing shirts and ironing them, and she made this thing. And I, I held that, and it was, I'll never forget right where I sat, what an what a amazing thing that was to me. But with that shirt came a letter. And which of the two do you think I looked at with the most attention? I wanted to see the letter more than anything else. And as important as that shirt was, it helped me to know something about Beth. But the letters helped me to know her, helped me to see who she was. I communicated with her. I heard from her. They were her words. In the absence of her presence with me, it was those words that mattered more than anything else, more than her creation. And I think there's an analogy there for us as we relate to our Heavenly Father. There is a beautiful creation by which we can see His great power and authority and might but there are words that He's written to us. Communication from spirit to spirit, from heart to heart, from God to man, where He is teaching us what He wants us to know. It is, in fact, as some have said, it might be a little trite, but I think it is, in a sense, a love letter to God, from God to us. We read many books that are of interest to us, but we must value this book as the words of God as a letter from him. It's not as easy to read, we all know, as a letter from your girlfriend. Not nearly as easy to read or to understand or to decipher. But like the Thessalonians, we need to welcome it and to value it for what it actually is, God's word to us. Now and then, we just need to sweep past that truth and hear it again. Not the words of man, but the words of God. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Base your life in living upon it. We value the Bible for its origin, where it came from. Secondly, we should value the Bible for its nature, what it is. You notice there, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, that the Bible is alive. You received it, the Word of God, not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God. Then notice there at the end of verse 13, which is at work in you who believe. It is at work. The Greek language has here just one word, meaning to work effectively or to work efficiently or productively. This book, this word, is not a dead letter. It is alive. It works with productive, efficient power. Here is inherent in the Bible a living energy which transforms people. Notice Acts chapter 19, if you will, having recounted the response to Paul's preaching of the gospel in Ephesus. Luke adds a comment here that is intriguing to us and helpful to our understanding of the topic this morning. But Acts chapter 19, in verse 20, you notice there scrolls are being uh, are burned and uh, things that were being used in 
witchcraft and the occult and the worship of the gods. And then there's this, again, this tremendous response there in Ephesus. And then we find this phrase tucked into this narrative account. Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The Greek could be translated this way. Thus by might, the word of the Lord was continually growing and having power. Obviously, words cannot grow. There are some books that have taken the country by storm and been very popular, maybe even throughout the world. I've never heard of Harry Potter described in these words, that Harry Potter books are growing and increasing. Now, if anybody said that, they'd say, what, another one was written? No other word of God that's been written, but it grows, it increases, it is alive, it has power. It is effectual in transforming lives. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, This is my gospel, says Paul, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Now God's books, the word of God, the Bible can be burned. It can be destroyed, but God's word cannot be chained. Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 1 Peter 1.23, Peter speaks of the imperishable seed of the living and enduring Word of God. 1 John 2 and verse 14, I write to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God lives in you. When you read the Bible, you are talking into your soul living words. You are taking living words into your soul. They're not magical words. We need to be careful to note. But when these words are read under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, they prove to be alive. They take root and they bear fruit. They change and transform. They have an inherent power when they are wielded by the Holy Spirit in a receptive heart. But the Word of God is not only living and active, it's not, it not only has power to change us, by its very nature, the Bible is secondly truth. As we look at its nature, it is alive, it is living, it is secondly truth. So much could be said here. But I appeal simply to John 17 and verse 17, where Jesus prays to the Father and says this, Your Word is truth. Your Word is truth. Under the influence of Satan, who is a liar and a deceiver at heart, our world despises the concept of truth. Lying, false advertising, deception, self-deception, relativism, pluralism. Our world has lost any sense of ultimate truth. And if the statistics are to be believed, even the evangelical church in America is fast losing any notion that there is absolute truth. That is, truth which is equally applicable and authoritative for all people. Surveys of evangelicals are showing that it is cutting at the midpoint range, that is 50% and more, that do not think there is such a thing as absolute truth. It's a sad day, and we see it everywhere. Someone, I, don't, I just saw this, read this somewhere recently. Somebody asked Dan Rather to comment on Bill Clinton is an interesting question, but at any rate, he 
said of Bill Clinton that he thought of him as an honest man. Well, the reporter kind of did what some of you just did <laughs> and said, what about the pattern of lying? And Dan Rather said this, honest people can lie. That's where we've come to in this country. Honest people can lie. That's like saying red can be green. A door can be a car. It, it makes honest people can lie. Well, there's a sense, of course, in which what he's saying is true. Somebody who can be generally honest as we compare them with others may, in fact, at some point in their life lie. But here is a person of habitual falsehood who breathes falsehood with all due respect for his position and desire for his salvation for which we prayed for years. A man who consistently lies can be called in the media an honest man. We have lost all sense of truth. And it's grounded, it's founded in the universities of our day where pluralism and relativism run rampant. There is even the belief now among philosophers, and it's promoted from every major university, secular university in our country, that two mutually exclusive statements can both be true, if you want to use the word true, which we don't even know what it means. But at any rate, there is no ultimate truth, the message is, of this truth, we are absolutely sure. And in this vacillating, confused, and relativistic world, we can know that God's word is truth. I don't think we should worship our Bibles. Our Bibles are a mirror to God. They are a, a, a beam of light that draws to Him. But I tell you, there's times when I want to just hold the Bible to my heart and say, if there's anything true left in this world, it is at least this. The word of truth, James calls it in chapter 1 and verse 18. And again, as Jesus put it, your word is truth. What is truth? We could go into a long discussion of that, but there is basically one answer, I think, to that one proper answer, and that is the truth is that which corresponds to reality. There is only one perspective that entirely corresponds with reality, and that is God's perspective. Now, that might just be lost on some and go through one ear and out the other. Let me say, I, it's not profound because I said it, but that's a profound thought. If you believe that, it will transform your life. The only perspective that entirely corresponds to, God, to truth is God's perspective. There is only one way to live, and that is God's way. Every other perspective, every other lifestyle, all competing lines of counsel are lies which will someday burn with their master Satan. God's word is, in its very essence, truth. It reveals to us reality, and it steers us clear of the deceptive falsehoods of Satan. The battle of the Middle Ages was the addition of church tradition to the truth of Scripture. The battle in our smaller circle today of evangelical believers, I think the battle is to question the wisdom of Scripture the sufficiency of Scripture, to add to it the world's wisdom, its psychological philosophies, its economic practices, or whatever it might be, 
to add to this book, which is not seen as absolute truth, but which is seen simply as a help in making us what we would like to become. Where is it from? It's from God. It's His Word. What is it? It is alive, and it is truth. One more concept. We should value the Bible, thirdly, for its effects, what it does. It saves. You could fill in the list here. It saves, James 1.18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That has to be a birth after physical birth. He chose to give us birth, as Jesus speaks of it in John 3, of new birth through the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Somewhere, as you sit here this morning, you need to look back to you, in your life and say there was a time, there was a place, and you may not even be able to define exactly where that was. But you know, as you look at life, that there was a place where the truth of God's Word changed you. It turned from being a dead book or a book that you hated to one that spoke the truth. And you saw it. And you were transformed by it. It saves. But secondly, for those who are saved, transforms, as we've referred to John 17, verse 17, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify is to set apart unto God, to make holy. The means by which we are set apart unto God is the application of the truth which we consider in the Bible. But with all respect for the doctrine that it is God who grows us and sanctifies us. When we look at the human aspect, the confluence of the divine purpose with human activity, we must understand it is the intake of God's Word which will sanctify. Now there's a lot of qualifiers that have to go with that. Of course, you can take the Word of God in and you can memorize the entire Bible and not even go to heaven. But if you're going to grow in your Christian walk, it will be the truth of Scripture that will transform you. It's not going to be an experience. It's not going to be the latest Christian book that gives you the key to the Christian life that nobody has ever figured out until just now. And by the way, 1995 will help us out. That isn't where it's going to be. It's going to be in the truth of God's Word. Now obviously books can help us to see that truth more effectively but any book that is worth anything in drawing us to God is a book which helps us discern what he's saying in his word more accurately. There are no keys, there are no tricks, and there's no Christian author, despite all the claims, that's going to give you some answer that's not found here in the word of truth. This is the book that transforms. These are the words that transform. And, and I think you know my pattern of life. I'm reading books constantly. Every day of my life, as far as I know, I read some book. But it's those books that I read to help me understand better what God has said. And I would fit with that reading a novel sometime. Uh, all that we read, all that we see in this life, all that we perceive is intended to help us better understand the Word of God. But it is this Word that transforms for instance, let's talk about transformation just for a moment. The world teaches that ultimate sexual pleasure is found outside the heterosexual marriage. 
God's purifying truth instructs us the genuine sexual satisfaction comes within marriage. It transforms. The world teaches that ultimate financial pleasure comes from getting and consuming on ourselves. Let's make more. Let's buy more. Let's go more. It's all about that. The purifying truth of God instructs us that ultimate financial pleasure comes from giving and enjoying wealth in a way that magnifies God, not as a consumer, but as a worshiper. The word preaches and teaches, or the world rather, preaches and teaches that fulfillment comes through self-esteem and self-promotion and self-assertion. God's purifying truth sets us straight. It tells us something different. God's purifying truth teaches that fulfillment comes from meekness and humility and agape love toward others. It is a transformational message. It will lead us away from the strictures of this fallen world and will lead us into a path of life that is different. It transforms Let me turn to just one final passage. Look at it very briefly. Psalm 19. As was read earlier by Pastor, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, I'd like to focus on that section of it, that half of it. Looking first of all in the first six verses at the majesty of God displayed in the creative order. Now, then at verse 7, transforming to or turning to the consideration of the Word of God. And we find here, first of all, in verse 7, that the Word of God restores. It saves, it transforms, it thirdly restores. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Why do I use the word restore? The word perfect. The word perfect in the Hebrew, means to be complete or sound. With absolute integrity, it is entirely in accordance with truth. And the result is a reviving of the soul. The King James translates it converting of the soul. The Hebrew word here is to turn or to return. The word is usually used of turning back a soul toward God from evil. So it restores, it revives Not in the sense of just giving a a cold drink to somebody who's really thirsty on a hot day, but it turns back to the original path, the right path, God's way. It restores, it converts, it repairs, it brings back. God's God's words have the ability to turn a wandering heart back to righteousness. And I'll tell you, I, I certainly know as a pastor, and you know, we can't turn people back to righteousness. I would think probably in the tune of three hours yesterday, working with different individuals, seek to bring people back to righteousness. And there has to be a sense as we seek to do that as a church, as you do that with others, as we minister with each other and pull each other along, we can't do that. We can't bring that about. But God's Word can. It can restore. It can speak the truth that the soul needs to hear and it can draw a person back. With all of our words of encouragement, which are vital and important and necessary, it's only God's truth in the end, seen as the truth, that can restore, 
that can revive, that can turn someone around. I believe that with all my heart. And if it wasn't for that belief, it would be an absolutely hopeless endeavor. But God's word is alive. It transforms. It can change hearts. We can't do it. But God can restore an erring soul. Secondly, you see there, actually fourth in our outline here, but it imparts wisdom, verse 7. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The Hebrew, to make firm or lasting, to establish or support. The simple, that's not the stupid person. The simple is the person who doesn't see moral value, doesn't see moral truth. God's Word is a sure foundation. You can rest upon it and trust it, and it can give wisdom impart moral skill to the moral dullard. We're all born moral dullards, open to the deception of the world. God's word is our hope. It is the means by which moral insensitivity can be replaced with moral perception. And I say to you, parents, if you believe this, if it imparts moral wisdom, is it not important that we in our homes bring the Word of God to bear in the lives of our children? Is it not important that we in this church bring the Word of truth to bear upon the children of our church? If it is this Word that gives wisdom, then we must use this Word. It must be a part of our homes. Our homes ought to be saturated with the Word of God. And by the way, that doesn't mean you put a little door knocker on the front that says, we will serve the Lord, That's the, or that you hang something on the wall somewhere. But it means that the Word of God is a part of your conversation, a part of your life, because that alone is going to give moral wisdom to our children, not just common sense, but the truth of God's Word. In your personal walk, you know, we can turn this into a fetish. We can turn it into a ritual and a legalistic plan. Reading the Word of God every day is vital. It's not vital because it's some kind of magical system. But listen, if you're dealing with sin in your life, there's struggles in your life, there's suffering in your life, if everything's going well in your life, you need to saturate your mind in the Word of God. It needs to be part of your daily thinking because it gives wisdom to moral dullards like me and like you. It gives joy, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Think of the value that's being described here. It gives joy to our heart. It's not simply saying, here you are, idiot, get this, figure this out. That's not how the Word of God comes across to us. It says here is counsel from God, here is wisdom from God, and when we put that wisdom into practice, it gives joy to our heart. It's one reason among many why I know the Word of God is the Word of God, why I believe what Peter says about it. Because I find in obedience to these living words that there's always joy at the end of it. It doesn't make life simple. But there is nothing disappointing in God's Word. It is a book of comfort. It's a book of joy that can help us with, give us peace as we pass through troubled waters. In this book are words of courage and passion that will plant joy in your soul. Read it. Let them filter in. Second part of verse 8, it brings light. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. It's a little hard to understand exactly what's meant here, 
But the Hebrew word radiant can be translated either pure or radiant, and the idea may be something like clean as light, bright as, or splendorous in purity. It opens our eyes, it gives us vision, it helps us to see. God's Word allows us to see the brilliant purity of God's way. Just as the sun gives light to our physical world, so God's Word enlightens our soul, allows us to see spiritual truth. Is there anything in this book that will harm us or hinder us or steer us wrongly? No. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God's Word is trustworthy. It is pure. It is sweet to our soul. It brings the reader great reward. This book... The book that you own, that you can read, brings such reward. These are the words of God. They are living and true. They save and transform and restore and impart wisdom. They can make our hearts glad and shed light on our path. I say this again and again. Help it, to help it, I hope, settle down in our minds the tremendous value of the Word of God. Prize this book treasure it and use it. There once was a young man from the hills of Abernathy, Scotland, who treasured this book as it truly ought to be treasured. I read the words of a historian. I found this in a commentary once that I was reading at the beginning. He said this, early one morning in the year 1738, a shepherd boy with homespun clothes and bare feet stood at the counter of Alexander McCulloch's bookshop at the University City of St. Andrews. Now, there's a lot of history that would help us understand that better, but St. Andrews University in Scotland was as culturally right and advanced as could be found in Scotland. I mean, this was the center of learning, the center of history, the center of everything, largely in Scotland. And this boy doesn't even have shoes. From the hills, he has no business being in such a shop. And this was not a day of the uh, gentleness of our times. And so we read on, the startled shopkeeper was yet more surprised when he heard the youth's request. It was for a Greek New Testament. Boy! exclaimed a professor who was standing nearby at the moment, in fact, a Greek professor, providentially. He said, boy, if you can read that book, you shall have it for nothing. Soon a rather thick leather volume was in the lad's hand, and to the astonishment of all, he read a passage and won his prize. By that afternoon, now listen to this, and that history into that is, of course, he was studying this with his father at home, thinking about the Greek language as he shepherded the sheep in English-speaking Scotland. But by that afternoon, listen to this, 16-year-old John Brown was back amongst his sheep on the hills of Abernathy, having walked 48 miles since the previous evening to obtain his treasure. 
It doesn't even seem humanly possible, but I have a feeling he ran some of that time. Would you walk or run 48 miles to obtain a copy of God's Word if you needed to? You know, I really think about this church. By the way, I'll throw this in real quickly. I visited a church last week, second time on vacation. This has happened in the last few years. The only Bible in the place. Man, I hate that. (laughs) And I bring the only Bible in the whole church. But uh, you feel kind of odd about that. And here you are in a Christian church carrying a Bible. And it was a decent message. It talked about a lot of biblical things. But anyway, I'm glad to come back here where I don't look around and say, who's got a Bible here? But I think if you're in this church, you would. You'd go 48 miles. You'd go 148 miles if there was no other answer. You'd go to the place that it took to get a Bible. But perhaps for each of us this week, the far more searching question might be, will we walk across the room? The only way we will consistently read this book and benefit from its power is if we, like the young shepherd boy from the hills of Scotland, see this book for what it really is, a priceless treasure. My father purchased a Greek New Testament for me some years ago. And he wrote very simply on the inside of the front cover these words. The greatest volume in the world. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? And does your life in your home, the way that you treat this word, prove that you believe that? Whether a Greek New Testament or a Hebrew Old Testament or an entire English Bible, this volume is the greatest physical treasure on earth today because of where it comes from, because of what it is, and because of what it can do. Use it. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father,